Good morning. It's really good to be with you in this air-conditioned room, and I hope if you're watching online, you're as comfortable as we are in here. Uh, maybe a, a little cooler than it's going to be here. hope it's nice where you are. Uh, I'm super excited to be able to be invited by Doug and Harvey, Steve, uh, to be a part of this message series. I love the historic relationship that this church has had with Boise Bible College, and my role as president gives me the opportunity to just to travel and to, just to cross the river and say how pleased I am and how grateful I am for this church. And especially for Doug, y'all are really blessed with the staff you have and the leadership you have, and I'm grateful for Doug. Whenever I meet with him, he's so creative and innovative, and I love his passion to reach this area for Christ. So I'm grateful to be able to bring a message into this parable series of the kingdom. Uh, let me try to set it up this way. Um, you know, in, in our world today, uh, greatness is developed by what you do. In the Western developed world, greatness means you've arrived, that you have achieved, and you have, you have succeeded. It, it means that you've com- you beat your competitors. You've been more innovative. You've rounded the curve before they did. You've managed your time better, and now you're reaping the rewards, and now you are top on the charts. You're great. A few years ago, Adidas ran an ad, and this was their slogan. It was this, first never follows. I like Adidas, I like their apparel, I think they're trying to aspire athletes to buy their stuff and to achieve. I like that slogan, first never follows, right? So let's, let's try to adapt that a little more in the secular way of thinking, a little more contemporary. What if we said greatness never follows? That would be sort of a normal way of life today in our in our nation. Greatness means you're never second, you're only first. It means that you have achieved, you've arrived, you're it. And I wonder as a Christian sometimes that, you know, if you're meek, like Christ says to be, or humble, or if you yield and submit, then you're kind of overlooked and not always valued as great. So interestingly, one day, Jesus steps into a conversation that his 12 followers were having about being great once his kingdom is established on earth. And they're kind of jockeying for position. Who's going to be the top dog? Who's going to be first? Who's going to be the greatest? And Jesus makes a pretty shocking statement to them. He says, hey, gang, um, you want to be great? Be like, be like this child, one of the least in society. Be like one that many people may not recognize as very influential. You want to be great in my kingdom? Be like one of them. I can imagine the 12. Can you picture their faces? What? Be irresponsible? <laughs> be immature? Uh, you want me to be uh, like a kid? You want to, I'm trying to adult here. You want me to be less than that? And I, I think what might happen is, you know, it's not very complimentary in our day today to be considered as a kid. What a great kid you are. I think Jesus is saying to the guys, hey guys, I think you're missing my point here. I'm not saying be childish, be childlike. You want to be like a kid? Then you're great in my kingdom. Jesus illustrates this by talking about a shepherd in his day, probably one of the professions that was the lowest on the rung of society. And he talks about a shepherd who's got a hundred sheep. And one of his hundred is kind of wandered away and he's got the 99 preserved. And I mean, who would be in their right mind and go leave the 99 to chase the one? I mean, who would do that? 99% of the market, that's a great deal, right? Who would ever do anything different? I would for sure lose my shepherd's license if I left the 99 to go follow the one. But Jesus is like saying to his disciples, 
you know, what I'd like for you to consider doing is actually becoming like one of those shepherds, that you would care enough to risk leaving the 99 to find the one, because the one in society matters to God. And then he takes that conversation of greatness, and he ups the ante. He takes it a step further when he talks about a fellow Christ follower hurting you, wronging you, even sinning against you. Uh, How should you address or handle that person who who hurts you like that? Does God allow any wiggle room for any grudge holding? I mean, Jesus was the one who executed righteous indignation and he, he practiced righteous anger. Is there any room for righteous grudge holding in the kingdom of God? Let me just say, it may not be, it might be permissible to actually unfriend a person like that that might be hazardous to your emotions or maybe they're putting you in a a jeopardized situation or compromised situation. Maybe it's not safe to be in their presence always. You might want to distance yourself from them. But I think what Jesus is saying, if you want to pursue me and be a follower of me in the Jesus way of experiencing life to the fullest while you're here on earth, he ups the ante by offering this formula of how to address that. Someone who wrongs you. It's found in Matthew 18. Matthew 18, Jesus talks about those that are Christ followers that hurt you. I think it's good for everybody though. He says, this is what you do. Uh, You go to that person one-on-one, private. You don't make a big splash about it. It seems that Jesus wants full restoration between the two parties. And so go and address that. Try to achieve terms of peace if you can. It takes a lot of courage, doesn't it? Two parties to kind of meet like that under the radar to try to confront a wrong. It's risky. I mean, they may not even know you've hurt them that deeply, but you never know how they're going to react. They could be defensive. They could be angry at you. They could still be harboring something, or, or maybe they could be ashamed. They could be guilt-ridden, embarrassed, or humbled. Jesus says, if that person listens to you, then you've reached resolution. Hallelujah. But if that person isn't repent, they know they've hurt you, then elevate it to the point where you bring a couple of other Christ followers with you into that conversation, spiritually wise, you know, unbiased. They're sort of neutral parties. They're there to kind of, to kind of watch you as you seek restoration. Two or three witnesses was important for uh, validating the testimony of your attempt and, and actually reporting and removing any false testimony that might come out of that conversation. If he or she listens with a humble heart, with you and a couple of other Christ followers resolving the matter, then hallelujah, their heart was humbled if they've listened and you won them back. But if that fellow Christ follower doesn't submit, doesn't, you know, puts up a fight a bit, even with the other Christians in the room there, then advance the matter to the entire church, Jesus says. That's kind of interesting, I think. Advance it to the, not a big gossip hour, not to get all the nitty gritty and all the details. I don't think that's the point. I think what Jesus is saying here is he's using the word, it's only used twice in Matthew's gospel, the word ecclesia, that we transliterate as church. Ecclesia is God's, God's presence on earth to seek restoration. The ecclesia would be God, heaven's representation of Love and justice together in order to restore and to resolve grievances. The church is this dynamic organism where anybody's welcome to experience grace with truth. It's a place where covenant love exists and resolution can be achieved. Jesus says, if that person listens to the community of Christ, as they address the matter, hallelujah, you've won them back, but... 
If they refuse to submit even to the body of Jesus, trying to execute righteous love and justice on earth, Jesus says a pretty harsh statement. He says, well, dismiss them from fellowship. Uh, Kind of remove them for a season so that in that absence, you would pray for them to repent and that they might return and be a part of the fellowship again. It's sort of like redemptive excommunication just for a season. Hmm. If CUC doesn't listen, Jesus says, treat him like you would a pagan. He says, treat him like you would a tax collector. Interestingly, that's Matthew's profession. <laughs> He's the one recording this story. And he knew full well how people had treated him, shunned him, marginalized him because of his employment. Treat him like you would like that because their heart needs to be tenderized. Their heart is hard and treat him like you would an outsider. It's almost like star all over with them. They need to understand the redeeming power of the gospel of the king that would prompt their faith anew in God and would, and would push them to repent and be humble to rejoin the fellowship. Love them like you're lost. I think the key to all this is Jesus says, I'll be present with you where two or three prayer warriors are praying for reconciliation and restoration. He says, I'll be present with you where two or three are gathered in my name, pursuing that sort of a resolution. I'm all in. I'm present with you in that process. That's Matthew 18. And in that process, in the Jesus way of handling conflict with a fellow Christ follower, we got to be honest with the issue. When I'm hurt, when you're hurt, going to that extreme limit of forgiveness when they don't deserve it, uh, of unclutching a grudge. Well, you don't know how much they've hurt me. You don't know how deep that runs. Can I trust them again? When we feel that, it's hard. So I think the point Jesus is trying to say is greatness is when the wronged initiate reconciliation. The one having leverage over the offender, acting first to seek resolve, unclutching the grudge. That's the Jesus way, and that is great in my kingdom. Forgiveness, it's it's not an easy process, is it? It's not easy to go from crying revenge to giving mercy. And when you've been wronged and wounded deeply, it's just hard to let go. It's really hard, it's really hard to forgive. We want justice. We want them to feel something. And we feel justified in our, in our state of being a victim. We want them, I don't want to let go of my bitterness. I want them to, to feel some of my hurt. As I'm processing this message before uh, today, when I was handed this parable, I, it was actually tough. Got some memories of being wronged, sinned against, being wounded, and it hurts. It's very hard not to sin and let go of a grudge. That's why I appreciate Christine Kane's wisdom. She said this, the blood of the cross does not give amnesia, but it does give us life beyond the past. As Jesus is sharing these three illustrations of, of becoming like a child to be great and shepherding to go after the one to be great and and reconciling with one of the offenders in your world in order to be great in God's kingdom. There's one of the 12 is all ears. Peter. Peter's listening really closely and he, he actually asks Jesus a legitimate question about this. He says, Lord, uh, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? 
And he couches this whole statement kind of in, you know, real generous mercy. Should I forgive him seven times? <laughs> in Jesus' day, par for the course was second chances, maybe third, but seven. That was really liberal, really nice of Peter. And Jesus is like, oh, Peter, man, way to think out of the box. You're thinking way too small. How about 70 times seven, Pete? 490 times, Peter. Oh, but who's counting? Certainly it's unwise to continually to put yourself in a position that might be abusive, a position in a conversation or a situation that is not going to be healthy. Certainly need to be wise with that. But I think what Jesus' point is this, there is no limit to forgiveness. Mercy like that equals greatness. And with that, Jesus issues a parable to Peter Jesus is establishing in these parables through the summer series. I love this idea of walking through the stories of Jesus. He's really talking about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And within that kingdom exists this organism called the church. And within that church exists people. And when forgiven disciples who come to Jesus, when forgiven disciples who exist within the ecclesia, within the church, they find their real identity is representatives of this greater kingdom. The kingdom parables and this one's This parable is going to challenge you because it's going to be like a TSA machine at the airport. It's going to see deep down into your soul what the roots are and if there's roots of bitterness within you. It will actually analyze us. And so we need to actually, if you're willing to stay put and give a good ear to Jesus as he tells us this story. He's a masterful teacher, using parables as his favorite way to get to a truth. And, and when we listen, I believe when we truly listen, it'll change the trajectory of our life to represent the kingdom. To counter Peter's generosity of seven times forgiveness, Jesus tells a story where a king exhibits extreme generosity. Let me set it up with a couple of characters. You got the king. Scholars kind of wonder with the wealth of this king. It's maybe an, an Egyptian in the empire of Egypt. He's got several layers of servants, several echelons of servants. He's got some upper level servants who are better off than all, nearly all the free people in his empire. They're well off. And you got some provincial servants. They're kind of vassals of the king. They serve the king in, in other areas. They function as the king's tax agents for the regional farmers. And because the king, he, he's pretty generous in his management. He lets the, the tax agents kind of pocket a little profit on the side, but he wants them to have meticulous accounting and integrity. And so here's the kingdom parable in response to Peter's question in verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. <laughs> if we were there, we might actually see a little smirk on Jesus' face. This hyperbolic detail in this parable of how far this king would have let this servant get into debt. 10,000 talents. Some scholars estimate this might be equivalent to, in U.S. dollars, 20 million this is an enormous amount of debt. It would take a lifetime for a minimum wage average worker like this servant to pay it off, if that was even possible. Verse 25, and since he couldn't pay, Jesus says his master ordered him to be sold. Along with his wife and children and all that he had, and 
payment to be made. This guy may not be worthless. Maybe his wife and kids and property might, might cover some of the debt. And so the servant fell on his knees, imploring the king, have patience with me and I'll repay everything. I'll repay everything. That's a, that's a lie. That's, a, that's patently impossible for this guy to pay off what he owes. And then Jesus inserts in the story something, something unheard of in the character of a king like this. In verse 27, out of pity, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. He did what? How much did he let go? He pardoned that guy? Oh, this is a good king. Brokenhearted for a servant. He had pity. He knew the debt was too much. And so he reflects heaven's business on earth. Heaven's business is forgiveness. This king is like God. This king is like the God of the universe, the creator of all, our savior, who felt compassion and he dissolved the debt in order to lift off this suffocating burden on this servant. Here's the point to just put it out clearly for us. God's character is at stake in this parable. The kingdom of God is like this king. Given the ruthlessness of ancient Near Eastern kings in Jesus' day and the greatness of debt that he allowed this servant to have, it's almost impossible in our real world thinking about this debt being removed. It's almost impossible for us to get our minds around this. That's how parables work to kind of stretch us outside of our norm of being offered forgiveness of that amount. Can you imagine the servant? Oh, it must have blown him away. He's about to be sold and his family as well. I wonder if tears burst out of his life on the floor, nose to the floor in front of this king. But that's not where the parable ends. Be a good ending, wouldn't it? Roll the credits, play the music. Jesus surprises his hearers. He takes an unanticipated turn in this parable. In contrast to this good king's mercy, this irresponsible middle manager with all this debt that he owed, takes a pivot in verse 28, but, but when that same servant went out from the king's presence, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. The slave found a fellow slave in his department, a little lower, a little lower in the org chart, fully employed by the king on the payroll, begins to choke him, pay up. Apparently, this lower servant worked for this little higher servant who had just been forgiven this great debt by the king and owed him some money. Now, we need to take a time out to talk about the currency Jesus uses here. He's been talking about talents, and then he changes it to denarius. A talent is a large piece of currency. 10,000 talents, scholars conclude, like I said, maybe 20 million U.S. dollars, a ginormous amount of money. Now, a denarius very, very small. One denarius equals one day's minimum wage. So a hundred denarii be about a hundred days of a common worker's wages. For us in our world, maybe 75 bucks, hundred dollars tops. It's a small amount by comparison at a ridiculously minuscule sum compared to that huge debt that that previous servant owed. I wonder what the motive is here. 
What's this upper level servant treating this poorer servant, lower servant? Why? What's he doing? What's his motive here? I, I wonder if though forgiven, he thought maybe I could work my system and my network. I could work my portfolio and I could maybe accrue some, some currency to maybe show the king I was worth that level of forgiveness. Don't we kind of fall into that lie? Relieved, overjoyed, forgiven. And yet maybe we still feel like we got, I got to get some skin in the game to, to show that I, I'm worthy and I, I earned something there. This forgiven agent of the king was not emulating the character of the king. It wasn't reflecting the king. This forgiven servant, the first one, he was not behaving like the king. So verse 29, when his fellow this fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, and he said, have patience with me and I will repay you. But the first servant that was forgiven refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. And certainly someone in prison couldn't pay back anything unless maybe some friends, you know, a GoFundMe account was created. Maybe some friends chipped in to, to try to deal with some of this. Besides, besides a hundred denarii, come on, 75 bucks, hundred dollars. It'd be easy to pay off. You know, he may not have it in his pocket right then, but it's a couple of months wages. He could do it. And so he pleads with the exact same words as the first servant, I will repay everything. Now, by now, Jesus has hooked his audience. The people there listening to this are in the tension point with him. He's highlighted the drama. The crowd is muttering, what's going to happen next? Verse 31, when the fellow servants of that region saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went out and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him, that forgiven servant, and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. I had pity on you. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? When the king heard of this misrepresentation of his character, he pulled this wicked slave in for questioning. The king is naturally angry. This forgiven servant put another servant out of commission. How pleasing is that to the king? He's not gaining any revenue for the king in the prison. And the servant, he might've tried to create some excuses as to why he was doing that, some of his rationalization, but the king would have nothing of it. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? King here had gained great advantage in his empire. He had gained great admiration, convincing his people with integrity of his benevolence and his kindness. But once it was rumored that this first servant that was forgiven that ginormous amount of debt, forgiven as he was, was acting without mercy. But with revenge, it reflected poorly on the king and his benevolent character. And so the king executes righteous justice, in order to preserve his character, verse 34, in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. Hmm. Now just remember how parables work. Jesus is using extreme hyperbole. He's pushing language to the breaking point to think it's out of the box. He, he just, that's how parables sort of are. They're not always real, it seems like. There's sort of, there's a truth there, but he, he adds some things that just don't seem to get our minds around it. I mean, why in the world would this king allow that servant to get that far into debt in the first place? What sort of a king is this? Well, think about that 
If this king is indeed, let's say, an Egyptian emperor, you know, clearly not observing the king of the universe, the creator, a pagan king, if, if this pagan king is so merciful in justice, how much more will the king of heaven execute wise justice and extend unpayable mercy? How much more? Jesus point to Peter and the apostles and to us. It's found in verse 35. After the king had executed his righteous justice, he says this, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. It's a word of warning from Jesus. He knows. He knows how difficult it is to forgive from your heart. If you've been sinned against, your heart hurts. But if you've been forgiven and don't extend the same depth of mercy, Jesus will have, it's just pretty staggering. He'll have nothing to do with us. <laughs> it casts us out of his presence. Whoa. So here's the point. God's character is at stake. Jesus' fame is in the balance in this parable. The, the kingdom of God is like this king. And when we fail to forgive anyone who owes us, we fail to represent the king's mercy towards us. The king's character is at stake. And when we fail to forgive anyone who owes us, we fail to represent him. Think about that with me. I've just covered one chapter, Matthew 18. It starts with when we fail to humble ourselves like a child and we fail to, to care about a wayward sheep. And when we fail to unclutch our grudge towards someone who owes us, we fail to be great in the kingdom because we fail to represent the king's mercy towards us. Here's the point. We must let God's grace change our ambitions for greatness on earth at the expense of dismissing people around us we don't want to deal with anymore that have hurt us. He needs to heal our hearts and our hearts' hesitancy to reconcile when we feel justifiably victimized and we feel wrongly treated. That's discipleship. Discipleship following in the steps of Jesus demands being conformed. It demands being conformed to Christ's cross. It's a cruciformed life. A life shaped by Christ's cross. Matthew 18 is this story. But what Jesus says in Matthew 16 and what Jesus says in Matthew 20 actually are pretty important. It bookends this whole Matthew 18 story. In Matthew 16, Jesus explicitly clearly predicts his death. And then in Matthew 20, he predicts his death again. And in between his predictions of his death, we find this parable of forgiveness. In the middle of all this, we have a lesson about humility to the point of death and innocence in that death of carrying a cross. In the middle of this, we have this crucifixion of my pride and my grudge that I want to hold. And aren't you glad Jesus didn't? That's discipleship. It may not feel good, but something good always comes out of carrying a cross of forgiveness. It's not always comfortable when we're hurt at all. The cross is stretching. It's hard to breathe. It's painful. But God can repurpose scars like that. Garrison Keeler from the Prairie Home Companion, he said, it's a shallow life that doesn't give a person a few scars. 
I'm guessing you've got a scar or two in your heart. There's some stories in this room. If you're watching online, there's some emotional scars that maybe even from other Christians, which makes it even more painful, it seems. Dings and dents in our life. That's sort of the fallenness of our world. And the enemy of the cross of Christ loves to touch that nerve of past hurt, kind of blindsiding us out of the blue, not anticipating that it's something today touches us that happened many, many weeks or months or years ago. And it's almost like all those feelings come rushing forward. He loves for us to get caught like that and to get trapped in our hurt and to freeze us. So what can we do practically? Here's a couple of things we can do. What does conformity to the crucified Christ look like? Well, here's at least five things. One would be to talk to the king today. Ask for his help. Recall his mercy Have that mercy rekindle a a heart of gratitude for that person that's hurt you. And and related to talking with him, we'd be honest, really transparent and vulnerable, uh, raw with him, uh, with the harbored hurt, with the anchor deep in the bay of your soul. That we don't dodge it with busyness because we don't want to go there, but maybe explore our feelings with him. Talk about him and being honest with him about that, which would lead to a posture of kneeling before the cross afresh. I mean, I mean, literally, guys, I mean, I mean, knees on the floor, nose to the floor, prostrate in a position of humility before our Lord and seeking his soul healing and yielding to his authority. And after we talk with him and we're honest about our feelings and we kneel, the fourth step would be actually making that appointment, setting up that appointment soon to pursue reconciliation. Could be within your family, a coworker, Christian, and then bathe the whole thing in prayer. Maybe you can ask a prayer warrior who will keep it confidential to pray with you that your offender, your offender may not realize to the depth of your hurt. And so praying about that, asking Jesus to protect that appointment from the enemy who only wants to stir the pot and to pray for Jesus' presence to be there, to reign in that moment, towards resolution. You know the hallmark trait of Christ's cross? It's forgiveness. Forgiveness received and forgiveness given. May we not have amnesia about what we've received. Lord, remind me afresh of what I've received. But it's forgiveness extended, forgiveness applied, becoming a conduit of grace to others. It starts with pity. It starts with compassion like the king in the parable, like that good king. I don't know how he did it, but with Jesus' power, he can help us dissolve that debt and lift that suffocating burden off that person who you may think doesn't deserve it like we don't. When you know that person owes you, it's up to you, Jesus says, to meet them in their anguish and meet them in their guilt to meet them in their shame. And with Christ's mercy, meet them. With Christ's love, meet them. With Christ's compassion, meet them. In the parable, the king's greatness and the king's power was expressed with compassion and mercy. But what, can we be honest? That is, that is a secu- that's a foreign thought in our secularized world that we live in. Uh, we live in such a non-spiritual mind that when Jesus is talking about this idea of forgiveness, that's such a, such a foreign concept to many people in our day today. Our society is all about justice at all costs, no mercy. And when placed alongside the truth of the king's merciful character, there's a clear difference 
and a clear deficiency in the human definition of greatness in our world today. The world doesn't understand grace at all. The secularized mind would be never forgive. If we live like that as Christ followers, I think it just erodes what real life is really like from Jesus. So an audit of our soul may reveal we're not always inclined. An audit of our soul may reveal we're not always thinking about acting with mercy like the king. So remember your mission. Why do we exist here? Our mission on earth is to represent God's kingdom character. To represent his pity and his compassion and forgiveness that people will be drawn to that sort of a God. And as servants who are so closely conformed to his likeness, they would see him and his character in us. And the result would be we're a living expression by his grace with all the cracks and failures in my life, that by his mercy in our normal everyday life with people, we will eventually need to extend forgiveness as countercultural as it may be. So the moral of this story, you are great. You're most like King Jesus when you extend grace to that person who doesn't deserve it. Maybe you've heard of Corey Ten Boom. Her family were Dutch Christians who saw what the Nazis were doing to the Jewish people during the Holocaust and they decided to do something about it and they, they hid Jews in their home in 1943-44. They did this until they were found out. They risked a lot and then they were found out by the Nazis and they themselves were put into a concentration camp. And there in Ravensbrück, Corey's sister Betsy died just before the Allied forces arrived. Decades later, Corey went to Germany to boast about God's help during that season. I want you to listen to Corey's own words as she describes what happened on one occasion when she was in Germany. Now I've spoken about be right with God, but now be right with men. And there is a problem. I could not forgive. It was some time ago that I was in Berlin. And there came a man to me and said, Ah, Mr. Bohm, I am glad to see you. Don't you know me? And suddenly I saw that man that was one of the most cruel outseers, guards in concentration camp. And that man said, I have, I'm now a Christian. I have found the Lord Jesus. I read my Bible and I know that there is forgiveness for all the sins of the whole world, also for my sins. I have forgiveness for the cruelties I have done. But then I have asked God grace for an opportunity that I could ask one of my very victims forgiveness. And Fräulein Zambohm wants him here forgiven. Will you forgive me? And I could not. I remembered the suffering of my dying sister through him. But when I saw, when I experienced that I could not forgive, suddenly I knew I myself have no forgiveness. Do you know that Jesus has said that? When you do not forgive those who have sinned against you, my heavenly Father will not forgive you your sins. And I, I knew all. I'm not ready for Jesus' coming because I have no forgiveness for my sins. But I was not able, I could not, I could only hate him. And then I took one of these beautiful texts, 
One of these boundless resources, Romans 5, 5. The love of God is shed abroad into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. And I said, thank you, Jesus, that you have brought into my heart God's love through the Holy Spirit who is given to me. And thank you, Father, that your love is stronger than my hatred and unforgiveness. That same moment I was free. And I could say, brother, give me your hand. And I shook hands with him. And it was as if I felt God's love stream through my arms. You never touch so the ocean of God's love as that you forgive your enemies. And you forgive. Corey Tinboom, by the power of Jesus in her life, represented the king amazingly. Did you hear her line? Thank you, Father, that your love is stronger than my hatred. In our hatred, in our flesh, we can dig our moats deeper and thicken our walls and listen to the world's wisdom, which is foolish. It says, never ever lower the bridge for reconciliation in your life. Guard yourself. That's why when we live a cruciform life, trying to live as Jesus would want us to live by the power of Christ's cross. Christ's cross becomes our source and the optic through which we can actually see our offenders and see ourselves and forgive. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your presence and your power to do what our world would think is the most ridiculous thing and to forgive people who have hurt us so deeply. Thank you for your presence and your help. In our feeble efforts to try to be disciples that follow in your steps and to live as you would live, we thank you for your power to transform us and to conform us to your cross of reconciliation. Would you work through us, please? Each person would you minister to us and heal us and would you use us as your conduits of mercy and grace that people around would be drawn to you and seek forgiveness as we have. In your name, Jesus.